Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm Matt Arts, and I'm here today with Honest Christian Monk, who is the Associate Professor and Director of the Technoanthropology Lab at Alborg University, also the co-author of Controversy Mapping. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about you know, techno-anthropology broadly, computational methods, and hoping to almost kind of lay out a trajectory for some uh, that are working in business to how they can maybe incorporate digital methods into the work going forward, which is obviously going to increasingly be part of what we need to do. So, Anas, thanks for um, joining me today. Would you mind telling everybody a little bit about your anthropological story? Yeah. Hey, thanks, Matt. So, my story, my history with anthropology began when I was 20 and, and started studying anthropology, or rather ethnology, as it, the, the local European version is called in Denmark. Um, and um, I wasn't interested in anything digital at the time. I was fascinated by cultural differences in Europe and how they had been changing. Um, two things happened while I was studying. This is early 2000s, so I, I began in 2000, I believe. Um, one of them was that I got introduced to um, an almost forgotten research paradigm in ethnology, which is called the the historical geographical paradigm. So I've always been into, I've been fascinated with maps my entire life, and so there was this sort of cartographic period in European ethnology that spanned from late nineteenth century or up until the nineteen seventies, actually, in some countries. Um, where there was a sense that we had a sort of pan-European project to try and trace the development of, in particular, material folk culture. It was very inspired by linguistics and folkloristics. And so across countries, we're coordinating efforts to figuring out um, where particular variations of a hayrake had shown up on the map or where people were telling their kids-specific bedtime stories or how they celebrated harvest or whatever. And you took those patterns as indications of um, cultural boundaries, but also cultural roots of inspiration. It began as a very diffusionist project. Uh, that kind of that spoke to something deep in me: the idea that you could use data in a way that where you would bottom up see how emergent patterns of culture you can see emergent patterns of culture. And I was really puzzled that we had sort of left that behind. The story being that it just you know. It ran out of steam after almost, you know, being around for almost 80 years. People just got tired of trying to 
to trace these patents, which required tremendous manual labor and, and, and very, very rarely pay, paid off. So people just transitioned to doing, you know, community studies and, and in-depth ethnographies of local places. But I kept that interest with me. And then when I did my my PhD, which was in a in a geography department at the University of Oxford, um, I was I was studying um, how people relate to flood risk <laughs> of flooding, and um, and it was the same year that Facebook started. So it was, uh, or at least it was in two, beginning in 2007. So I, I, Facebook had started some years before, but it was in 2007 that pa- Facebook went uh, from being something that was, you know, you could you could get a, an account if you were at Oxford, but but halfway through the year, you could, everyone could be on. And so, um, sort of social social media, the way we know it today, was kind of kicking off. And all of a sudden, all these people who were discussing flood risk and whether or not to get flood defenses, they were doing that um, online, and there were you know massive amounts of digital traces. And so I became interested in a the burgeoning field of digital methods, which at the time was using techniques like web scraping to pick up, you know, large amounts of text from things like Facebook or blogs, websites, um, and then uh, to begin with, just doing like simple queries of that text to find out who you know who was talking about insurance in specific specific ways and so forth. And there was this distinct visualization element to all of that. So that whole crowd, which was very much organized around the, the digital methods laboratory in, in Amsterdam, where Richard Rogers were, and and around Bruno Latour's new media lab in Paris at the time, um, a lot of them were working very explicitly with data visualization. And so all of a sudden, I saw kind of like a revival of this the, the historical geographical paradigm that I'd, I'd been so interested in as a student, right? And so, actually, I after my PhD, I just decided that this is what I, you know, this is actually what I want to do. I want to just spend my career doing developing methods. So I abandoned flood risk as a topic and and went with the methods, and and that's kind of what I've been doing since. So figuring out, of course, now we have much more advanced techniques. Uh, you know, social media has gone from being like you know a fairly innocent uh, fooling around with doing graffiti on each other's walls to being serious business for democracy and so forth. So a lot of things have changed, but but fundamentally I'm still interested in the same thing, namely, um, is there a way to abductively and from the bottom up uh, discover uh, both cultural patterns, but also uh, maybe use uh, data to to, uh, to get a sense of different points of view on the world than, than our own, which to my mind is using data in a very ethnographic way yeah very good no and thanks for sharing that also helps me actually better understand you know when i look at your work say uh google scholar whatever it might be there is a lot of work in the mapping space from the you know nordic issuescape you know was one of the titles to this sort of wind and energy controversies so that now fits uh fits my understanding a lot more so uh there's a lot in there of course uh in your history and you know talking about how there's new technologies that are are making this easier, uh, in fact, much easier for people, especially with no code and and low code options these days. And so it really is becoming something that everybody can do, whereas when you started, it wasn't quite that. And so I think we'll eventually make our way there. But to to sort of level set, let's just dig into so you know you're at the you're at the technoanthropology lab. That's a term. Of course, there's the more traditional digital anthropology term. You're using computational anthropology in other senses. So, could you just give us like a you know define the landscape for us as you see it? Yeah. So, um, a couple of years after I moved back to to Denmark, um, after actually spending 
some years uh, at the Media Lab in Paris. Uh, there was this new educational program starting up at Albert University, which was in a sense an, a science and technology studies program, but framed as an anthropology program. It was called Technoanthropology. Uh, now, last year we got the handbook of the anthropology of technology, and so it's a field that has existed for a long time, and and that that program is interdisciplinary. It's half engineering, half um, anthropology of technology. Um, and so I think you know there are very familiar things in there that's been around in anthropology for 50 years, like you know uh, studying users or uh, following the trajectory of a biography of a technology across cultural contexts and things like that. But uh, one of the 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 component we added in the technoanthropology lab was what we today call computational anthropology. So in the technoanthropology teaching program, that's specifically uh, now we're coming back to the mappings. You know, can we use uh, digital methods and computational techniques to map how people have relate to and have discussions about new science and technology? This could be a vaccine, wind turbines, climate change. Uh, you name it, um, cell phone mast, uh, new development project of a highway or a you know, runway on an airport or whatever. Uh, big technological projects that prompt uh, a public to assemble and turn that into an issue. Um, good topics uh, for digital methods because lots of traces online, things, you know, stuff to be traced, stuff to be mapped. Uh, and so that's what we're focusing on, focusing on the technoanthropology lab. It's the computational side of that. And since all of us are, if not anthropologists by trading, then we have ethnographic backgrounds, sociology or cultural studies. Um, so eventually what we all want to do is get into the qualitative stuff and work exploratively, abductively, as I said before. Um, so we, this, this gives a certain flavor to how we want to use the computational techniques. Um, and you, So you mentioned that today there's a lot of low-code or no-code options available, which is certainly true um i want to say that one of the guiding principles of our work has also been to try and not be too reliant on just sort of the prepackaged solutions um from the philosophy that um if you want to do if you want to do computation in a way that fits what an ethnographer would like to do in a situation, you can very easily find yourself in a situation where a tool has been built in a way that supports other kinds of logics or different epistemologies. Um, it could be sort of simple quantitativist uh, ways of thinking, or or just that you know you have a hypothesis and then you test it, or uh, but you know being able to use a tool in a way that allows you to constantly reformulate the problem you have and work exploratively re re just requires it to be built in a specific way, or maybe even rebuild as you go. So, so part of our focus in the lab, or a big part of our focus in the lab, has been on actually also learning to code so that we can build our own tools or or be agile in that way. And so how are you, tell us a little bit about how you're teaching then anthropologists to, to develop those skills. So it begins very classically. We, in the first year, uh, we teach them conventional ethnographic methods, participant observation, uh, ethnographic interviewing. We teach them how to do field notes, how to transcribe their interviews, how to code that material. We teach them classic anthropology, you know, the theoretical canon of anthropology, if you will. Then they, they do that again on their second year, just uh, with more sort of recent uh, f theoretical and methodological innovations. 
And then on their seventh semester, we start, we, we, we teach a, a digital anthropology course where we get into things like uh, both ethnography, but also ethnographies of um, uh, you know, software and algorithms. Um, and we start touching upon ways of integrating ethnographic methods with data science. And then finally, on their eighth semester, uh, we have a two-year, two-week, sorry, intensive course. So they're there from eight to four uh, every day for two weeks, uh, called digital controversy mapping, where they're supposed to choose the a controversy that they write a project about. Uh, you know, it could be like the rewilding of a piece of land somewhere in Denmark, for example, or someone is building a power to X hydrogen plant somewhere, and that's first discussion. Um, and and we know that eventually in the project they will also go and talk to people, maybe do some participant observation. But they begin with the digital mapping of that, and and that means tracing how people are discussing it using using techniques like natural language processing or computer vision if there's images, to find patterns in that text, visualizing those patterns, uh, narrating them, so making sense of them, using them to guide you know deep dives back into the qualitative material, providing an interpretation of that. And then with that map, um, either guide you to further field work, like who should we interview, or even bring it to the field as an elicitation device. So you can have conversations with people who are in this discussion about, you know, what are the different positions or the different actors that are engaged, or maybe there's a timeline and things like that. And that course is, uh, is super, you know, it's doing first. So um, we have a web tutorial step-by-step step where um, we have some, we work in, currently we work in Colab, uh, Google Colab notebooks. So they see Python without having to write Python, but at least they have a sense. Sometimes we, you know, when questions come up, such as could this part of the of the method get, get us digital traces in a different way? Maybe we want, to, we want to scrape a different part of a Wikipedia page than what it's set up to do or whatever. And then we can, we can see together that it's, it's actually quite simple to change a few lines of code to have it do that. So they hopefully develop a sense of what it means to get your hands dirty with the with the code. Um, and they build their own visualizations. And so, you know, they, in, in two weeks, uh, 10 days, they, they go from, from having heard about this theoretically, lecture style, to actually having done, you know, produced from scratch a digital mapping with a qualitative narration of their controversy. You said earlier you're focused on methods, and obviously we just touched on a little bit of that. You've also published, um, co-published some work where you talk about data sprints, which kind of sounds somewhat almost like the course that you're talking about there in, in some sense, um, but also the concept of participatory data design. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about both of those concepts and how they relate? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. That's exactly how we run that course. And so the idea of the of the data sprint or, or participatory data design, as we also now call it, um, it, it could have it could have different origins. In in a way, it's like a hackathon, um, but in a, it also I think draws very specifically on a Scandinavian participatory design tradition and on something that's been well known in science and technology studies for a long time since the seventies, namely that if you want pub, a public to be involved, to be engaged. Um, in the development of new technology, you can't do it downstream. Like if you if you develop a, I don't know, um, a new urban development project, you do the plans, you show up and ask the citizens, you know, 
what should be the color on the walls, uh, no one's going to engage, right? Because the, all the important decisions have already been taken. And so you have this movement in STS from public understanding of science to public engagement with science or upstream engagement or whatever you want to call it. And, and, and in a sense, participatory data design is just a version of that. It's just saying, well, um, if someone is going to take an interest in a visualization of a debate, for example, um, they're going to have uh, they're going to have a stake in how we choose to show that debate. Um, is it should we accentuate the difference between actor groups? Should we accentuate temporal differences? Do we have the right keywords we're looking for? Are we looking in the right places? So you know, how do we datafy that debate? Um, how do we parameterize the natural language processing model uh, mod, uh, models we're using? Um, what what are the visualization choices? Uh, people who are in the controversy will have stakes in that. And so participatory data design is simply doing workshops where we involve those people in those choices. Um, and the the benefit, the added benefit is that that works super well as an, an elicitation device for an anthropologist. So if, if you're interested in studying that debate, you now have an occasion to sit down and have a discussion with people who are in the situation, your informants essentially, who now have to operationalize their concerns because they have to do that in order to decide if we're going to visualize it in this way or that way. So a lot of things that are otherwise implicit become explicit when you have to instruct a computer and how to crunch the data. Um, so that's a really rich situation anthropologically to be in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, very rich, you know, can be to some degree difficult, right? If we're if if we're talking about that kind of technology, um, you know, with the general public who has no training in it, there also is certainly a facilitation aspect to the role um, that, you know, maybe historically we're not trained in. So how do you go about addressing that? Not so much problem, but that need. So ideally, and this is not always possible, but ideally, I think you want to think about a number of different roles for one of these sprints. Um, one of them is the visualization side of things, right? So um, as a as a default, we should assume that no one can just read, you know, no one engages with code off the street. So there has to be an, an agile way of constantly making sure that what we're doing is made visual. So we collaborate a lot with information designers, um, in our network, we have a lot of collaboration with a design school in Milan called the uh, a lab at a design school in Milan called Density Design, um, and we also have other uh, design visualization specialists, basically, who are uh, whose job it is to make sure that um, intermediary results, you know, the consequences of filtering data in this way rather than this way, that we can actually look at that rather than just talk about it, and people can see it change. So I think that's that's one key component. Another is to make sure that, you know, on the pure facilitation side, um, there are good ways and bad ways of doing a sprint. Um, you should, like, for example, it really helps to make sure that we agree on something that we should produce in the end. That's why we can even call it a sprint, right? That we're, we're going to pretend at least that we're going to try to reach some kind of result, like a pilot of how this should look like that produces a certain intensity. It's also important that you allow the participants to start by stating their problems, and then you try to, you know, so, so everyone commits 
to actually trying to address those problems rather than just doing what whatever the tools are most uh, attuned to doing, you know, pushing the buttons that can't be, be, be pushed. Um, and then continuously through the sprint, you allow, you make sure that you have sessions where we reevaluate that together. Okay, so now we did that. Let, let's look at what came out of it. Uh, is that what we imagined? Probably not. So what what is it instead? Should we should we redesign what we're trying to do? All right. So you know, there's there's a definite sort of pure facilitation aspect to that as well. I want to jump forward. Talk particularly about a relatively new piece of yours titled the Thick Machines. So you trained neural net to predict you know emoji reaction associated with you know different comments, and you know it was sort of human versus machine in some sense there. And could you you know as a as a maybe just sort of use case, could you walk us through that and explain how you did that? And particularly, you know, the the, the uh, term of like training a neural net may sound, you know, complex or like a big hurdle to overcome for somebody who's first, you know, who's hearing this and first thinking about digital methods. So just tell us like how you went about that. Yeah, so maybe I should just start by explaining what the machine does, and then we can talk about why why it does that and, and why we think that's interesting uh so in sort of practical terms um the we've built a machine that that uh, trains on a lot of existing facebook data and the facebook data consents consists of posts that have been made on a page and then someone has made a comment on that post so we know that we know that there is a bit of text, and then there is some other text that is a comment on that post. And then we also know who has reacted to the post. So on Facebook, you can leave you know can leave a like, but you can also leave a, an angry face, or a crying face, or a haha laughing face, or a heart emoji. Uh, and so in, in many of the cases in that data set, we know that the person who made this comment on the post also made this emoji reaction to the post. We can associate a, a, a common text with an emoji reaction. And that means we have a, a training set in supervised machine learning terms, right? So supervised machine learning is, you know, the broad term for training algorithms on existing data where we know what the outcome should be. And so it, it basically learns to associate a semantic pattern with a love reaction. And then we can let it loose in parts of the data set that it hasn't been trained on, but where we still know what the right answer is that we can evaluate how good it is at getting the emoji reactions right. Using a neural network for that, like there are several supervised machine learning techniques. Um, neural networks are uh, basically like, you know, artificial networks of neurons, where you send a lot of, you know, the semantic pattern goes in as, a, as an input, and then you have several layers of neurons, and, and we basically don't understand what goes on inside those neurons. We just know that the the pathways through the network are being calibrated to fit that semantic pattern, and eventually the machine learns, and we know that it it gets better accuracy that way. But it's fundamentally on it. You know, we it's not like there are other supervised machine learning techniques such as decision trees, where the machine actually tells us why it's making the decisions. You know, it's emphasizing these words rather than others. That gives gives lower accuracy, but more explainability. I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to why the explainability is important, but it we're at a state now where training a neural network is really something you can do on your own laptop. Um, you can do it with uh, a library for Python like Scikit-Learn, which has neural networks in it. There are other options as well. 
And there's like this pre-written code that allows you to do that. And I'm pretty, I'm fairly sure we're gonna we're within the next year or two if we're not already there, uh, depending on how tailor-made your task is. This is gonna be a no-code thing that you can train your you know your training and your network. Okay, so what's the why did we do this? Um, we did it first. First, we thought we did it because we wanted to see if the neural network was better or worse than ourselves at getting, you know, guessing the meaning of these, the, the emoji meaning of these comments. So we played a game where the ethnographers in our lab were also told to, to, to try and uh, interpret, guess basically, what the emoji reaction of belonging to a specific comment would be. And the first interesting finding was that both ethnographers and the machine were pretty bad at guessing that. They had an accuracy of around 51%. Totally random would be 20% because you have five different emoji reactions. Um, and they also seem to fail in pretty much the same ways. So, the, you know, it's the same situations that humans and machine are uncomfortable about or find it hard to interpret. And so we, um, our next reflection on that was, well, so that means that if we were, if an ethnographer was going into Facebook as a field, there would be situations where it's fairly straightforward to know what is meant by an emoji, and then there are deeper situations where it requires explication or thick description, basically, you know, peeling layers upon layers of meaning of a situation to understand maybe layers of sarcasm that is at play in, in a uh, in a in a comment, which results in a specific emoji reaction. And of course, you know, any, any human ethnographer would be interested in finding those sort of juicy nuggets where thick description is, is worthwhile. That's basically why you would call the anthropologist, right, to do the analysis, you know. Um, and so the, hype, the, the, the idea developed that, that actually it's the failures of the, of the machine, it's the failure of the neural network to guess that, that is interesting for anthropology. Because we, that means we can we can now reappropriate a neural net the failures of an algorithm as input to further qualitative analysis, and so that's the argument of the paper is that what what we have that's why we call it the thick machine. It's both thick in the sense of being dumb, you know, it's not very good at guessing, but it's also thick in the sense of being maybe the first step towards a thick description, namely identifying the deep situations that are worthy of of, of, of thick description. Um, and and now I want to get back to the explainability because to my to and, and this is where I think I, I see things pointing. So so first of all, I mean I, th I think there's a huge area of application and thinking about how the false positives, the failures uh, of of algorithmic systems might actually be how an anthropologist or any qualitative researcher might reasonably use AI. Uh, I think it's a great use case for why we should engage in developing algorithms that do what, what we would like them to do rather than just expecting them to sort of, you know, be super trustworthy all the time because, you know, humans are not super trustworthy either. But the other thing is pointing like towards like the, the whole debate about explainability in AI because, of course, the neural network is inexplainable. And so is that a problem? Like that, you know, it's not giving us the blueprint for how this specific group of Facebook users are thinking. And um, 
that took us back to a debate in anthropology in the 60s between Clifford Geertz and the and the ethno-scientists. So I'm, this is a little bit of a rabbit hole matter. So just stop me if if you know, call me if you want me to get out of that. But 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 in in his foundational text about thick description, Geertz is basically discussing with the ethno-scientists and the ethno-scientists. He says, and, and I think he's right. Are, are, they're they're looking for cultural algorithms, right? This is famous text on, on how you should order a drink in Subanun, right? Which is an ethno-scientific classic, and it's it it basically produces an algorithm for how you should order a drink. You know, if then this, then or if not, then something else, right? Um, and so the ethno-scientists believe that that there was such a thing as cultural algorithms that determined how you should do things and interpret things in a specific cultural setting. Clifford Gess does not believe that. He believes that, you know, there are layers upon layers of interpreters, you know, there are turtles all the way down. There, there's no, there's nothing at the bottom. There's just layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of meaning. And that, that's why we should work hermeneutically, just try to provide yet another reading of all this com- complicated mess, mess of meanings. So, I think when you look at the explainability in AI deba- debate, um, basically, we could very well, if we just take that as is, that means that we're now ones looking for sort of an algorithm that could be printed out that explains how it works, which means that would make us ethno-scientists. They're basically, you know, that's, that's the first generation of AI. That's an algorithm that says exactly what it's doing, rule-based AI. Whereas we've now transitioned into a completely different generation of, of AI and machine learning where that's, you know, we're never going to get there. We're never going to get the blueprint. And so, in a sense, with AI, we find ourselves in a situation where it is just these complicated layers upon layers of meaning and probably we should start treating them as, be, you know, AI algorithms as beings that have grown up in a specific data setting and a specific, you know, community. And we need to find some way of of living with them and interacting with them and understanding them and, and anthrop- you know, rather than demanding that they should explain themselves blueprint style. Um, and so I think anthropology is probably the, the discipline in the social sciences that has the most experience with that exercise. Making sense of enigmatic situations where different cosmologies at different points of view on the world creates, you know, complex translation problems and, I, you know, we know how to write about that. We know how to be reflexive about that. And I think that's a that's partly also where uh, computational anthropology should be going, is that we might very well have the tools to, to put the explainable AI debate on a completely different uh, footing than where it is right now. So rather than looking for results that are unbiased, trustworthy, and explainable, maybe we should be appreciating that the world is inherently ethnocentric filled with overlapping cosmologies um, it's not about trust it's rather about rapport uh, and it's it's about interpretation across these boundaries rather than explanation you know so we essentially have inputs we have uh, the transformation in some sense we'll call it and sort of the outputs and in, you know in the sort of maybe the that middle stage uh, you know, you're you're making the argument that we don't necessarily need uh, explainability, like so many people are kind of hammering on about. But do you think there's also an opportunity to apply our anthropological perspective to the inputs? You know, so essentially the training sets and structure that data in such a way that is more anthropological, so that we are also training you know more anthropological models on the backside. 
there is that as well um and i think a lot of the work that is being done right now very fruitfully is in that space where anthropology is trying to enrich big data like you know it was a nice blog post by Tricia Wang 10 years ago that had that sort of, you know, big data needs thick data, uh, which is true, right? Is that, you know, if you're purely looking for patents, then at some point you're going to need to know the meaning of those patents, which could happen after the fact, like, you know, you produce the patents and then you ask the ethnographer to, you know, provide the, the thicker layers of interpretation of those patents. But it could also happen before it could happen at the training so you know you're dealing with maybe exhaust data or very shallow data so how does how do you improve the data quality how do you, do you ensure that you know the grounding of your findings uh, that you know that, that whatever the, you're training your model on is actually also saying something about the empirical ground uh ethnographers can help do that work for sure um and i think that's that's happening right now i just don't want to restrict anthropology to that sort of fairly analog slot of doing something we know well uh, and then leaving the algorithm design and and all of that to to the computer scientists so i think there's more i think just think there're more there's more work to do for anthropology in here if you were to say next steps for everybody of course you know broadly speaking develop data skills you know and embody data science don't don't shun it don't fight it but maybe more you know, a little bit more uh, specific in terms of some takeaways. Where do you think people should start if they don't have the opportunity to come to the techno-anthropology lab? So it's always good to start with a question, right? I think maybe a good question that we should all ask ourselves is, if, if anthropologists were designing the data machines, how would we design them? You know, of course, I appreciate that if a municipality somewhere is going to use AI to decide if you can get unemployment benefits, then there are demands on explainability and trustworthiness and transparency in that process. But if an anthropologist who is maybe caring for cultural differences, for how it could be how an indigenous group see the world differently, like, you know, you should definitely be worried about insisting on having universal explainability and unbiased algorithms. What you will get from that is, you know, algorithms that pretend that cultural differences don't matter or just reproduce like a hegemonic majority culture as if it was universal. Just to give you an example of, of how I think any anthropologist would in instinctively know that that's probably not how I would build that machine. So maybe that's the first step is just to recognize that if we had the tools, we would probably do it differently than what the sort of, you know, the, the paradigm right now suggests that we should be heading towards in AI. And then I think there are, um, you, it's, it's very hard to give universal advice on this. What works for me and what I think works for many people is to begin with, with a, rather than trying to learn things like coding or skills, I think it, it's, it, it, what makes sense is to begin with wanting to do something. So this could be, okay, so there's a language model here. Um, oh, like, let me, no, let me give another example. So I, I realized there's just been this debate about uh, gender bias in Google Translate. Right, so we, you figure out that if you say um, in Danish, for example, you don't say if you're a, we don't, we just call it, uh, we don't distinguish between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. We just have one word for that. So if I ask Google Translate to translate uh, my boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm not specifying that it's doing the dishes. It translates into girlfriend, or if you know, but if it's earning the money, it translates into boyfriend. 
I think that's now been fixed uh, by Google, or it fixed in the way that it now just calls it partner, which in a sense is another example of how you know <laughs> a universal might you know a solution might not be the best way because then we're also losing some nuances in language. But anyway, I was in the situation where I, I wanted to test uh, if that you know. I know that I can see that situation from Danish to English, but I know that you know the translation between other languages might produce other kinds of biases. Um, and I wanted to do it on a, on a larger range of words. And ideally, what I would like to do is to just keep running that every day because I want to detect when Google is make, making changes to this. And it's actually super easy to do that if you know how to talk to the Google Translate API. So this requires 10 lines of Python code Uh, that are more or less pre-written that you can find on the web. And that, I think that's a sort of a manageable task because it would be great to know and to keep an eye on. And if you can if you can figure out how to write those 10 lines of Python, you can, you know, you're good. You can, let's go. Uh, so I think it's finding those kind of, uh, you know, small tasks where it would make a huge difference to be able to code something. And then, you know, Google it. It's a... Uh, it, A lot of it has probably already been written in small snippets. Uh, you have things like you know notebooks like Google Colab that allows you to compile Python code really easily. Uh, also on the visualization sites, you have you know lots of nice online services that allows you to to look at your data in different ways. So I think there is yeah I don't know my my advice would be to begin with the with the question that makes you realize that you would probably do this differently and then find one little manageable task where there was be where there would be big gain from learning something fairly simple code wise so uh in terms of what you have coming up i believe you're you have a new initiative at the university so would you mind maybe sharing a little bit about that yeah so interestingly uh now we've talked about anthropologists and their special needs and what is interesting is that you find this across the social science and humanities in history for example i have colleagues at the history department who are working with archival data, of course. And one of the things they realize is that when you're scanning, uh, OCR scanning 17, you know, text from the 1700s, um, those OCR scans are very, they're bad at guessing how Gothic handwriting looks, so they're missing a lot of letters. And the current language models are trained on, you know, our, the language we have today. So they saw an interest in retraining those language models to 1700-style Danish and then have an AI help them fill in the gaps that, that's been missed in the OCR scan. You go to the archaeologist, you have another version of that. You go to the business school, you have another version of that. You go to the political scientists and so forth and so forth and so forth. So across the social sciences and humanities, there seems to be different versions of we would probably do machine learning differently if we were writing the algorithms and training the models. And so you have few people in each department who do that, and they are typically quite alone because all the others um, don't really are not there yet. They don't really get it, and so they don't have a, a community. And so what we're just starting now at Albert University is a, a basically a cross-faculty uh, center or an interfaculty center for computational social science and humanities, where we unite all those different disciplines who want to do AI and machine learning differently from the point of view of different disciplinary situations. So we call that machine with an SH in the middle, 
to signal that we're, you know, we're all building machines, but we're doing it in a, in a social science and humanities way. Uh, so I'm, I'm super excited about uniting that group of people who, despite of very different trainings, have something very essential in common. Well, sounds like a wonderful initiative. Very, very useful. Um, so if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, where would be a good place? Yeah, so um, LinkedIn is, a, is, is good, or follow me on Twitter. Honest, thanks for coming on. Thank, appreciate you spending the time. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at mattarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.